Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today we are in our series about wine importing. And today we are going to be digging into the business focusing on South America and sake. And Nick Ramkowski, who's the owner of Vine Connections, is going to be our guest and give us a breakdown of what he's working on. So, Nick, welcome to the show. Could you please give me and Peter a brief overview of your background? Thank you, Robert and Peter, for having me. My background, I went to school at Berkeley and started working at North Berkeley Wine Company. And the reason why is when I was a junior in high school, I spent a year in Dijon and the third family I lived with was through the Rotary Club, was a banker who lived in Fixin next to Gervais Chambertin. And he would let me go down as a 16-year-old into his cellar and pick a bottle of wine every night for dinner. And I would bring that up and we would share it. And he would tell me about the producer because he was a banker who probably supported them as a a vigneron. And we uh, would drink, have great food. And I fell in love with wine as a a 16-year-old. Uh, coming back to the U.S., didn't quite have access to a Burgundian cellar. And so I forgot a little bit about what I had experienced. And then when I went to school at Berkeley, I was looking for a job. As my father said, it was time to go to work and uh, support myself. So I put myself through school and did that working. I found a job at North Berkeley Wine Company, which was next to Chez Panisse in the Gourmet Ghetto. And it really was an amazing place to to work. And I ended up being the manager and and buyer and stayed on after college and then went to France for a while, came back and I was looking for a job and got a job in distribution. So that's how I got onto the distribution side after returning back from France. And for those who aren't that familiar, North Berkeley Wine Company is a retailer or an importer? They're a retailer and they also have an import company now called North Berkeley Imports. And so they're nationally imported. There's a a backstory to that as well, that the now owner of North Berkeley Imports and North Berkeley Wine Company is from Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which is where I live. And I recall receiving a, a phone call from the owner of North Berkeley Wine Company saying that this gentleman from Jackson, Wyoming wants to buy the store. And I was like, well, where is Jackson, Wyoming? And now I live there and Billy Weiss and I are good friends. And so how did you end up deciding to start Vine Connections and give us a brief overview of what Vine Connections is? Sure. So Vine Connections is a national import and marketing company. We are currently focused on wines from South America and sake from Japan. And I started the company actually as a broker and distributor when I was 25. And so when I came back from France and went to work for a company called Wine Distributors, owned by uh, Jerry Draper, my sales manager, uh, Jeff Dye, who first hired me, left the company and went to work for Lockwood Vineyards, a Central Coast winery. And he had called me up because he was looking for a broker in the East Bay. And that's where I lived. And that was my territory. And I was 25 at the time. And I was like, oh, I could be a broker. I can live on top ramen. And, uh, and so I quit my job and became the broker for Lockwood Vineyards in the East Bay. And that's how I got started with Vine Connections and then slowly added some properties. And one was uh, Edmund St. John, Steve Edmonds, which is, I think, one of the great California Roan producers. 
And then I also started working with Billington Imports, which was the importer for Catena, Cusinia McCool, some great wines from South America. So that's how I got introduced to Laura Catena and the Catena family. And so they were making amazing wines. And I went down to Argentina for a trip and got exposed to Laura's project with Luca and her brother's project with Tikal. Susanna Balbo was running the exports for Catena Winery and had her label that she was doing, Susanna Balbo Wines. And they were amazing. And I just thought, be an incredible opportunity to bring these brands to the U.S. And so I had formed a partnership with a gentleman named Ed Lehrman, who just retired last year. So he and I put together the first premium portfolio of Argentine wine, and this was uh, 1999-2000. And our least expensive bottle of wine from Argentina, if you had to guess, was $24 retail. That was our least expensive wine over 20 years ago. And so Ed and I had a belief in that maybe we should be a company that focuses on regions that have a history for production, but not a recognition for that production. And so we came in, like I said, with our least expensive wine at $24 retail. I traveled, started traveling the country 250 plus days a year looking for people who would listen to our story about why these wines were amazing. Ed and I sold 2,000 cases roughly our first year. And we thought, wow, if we could get to 10,000 cases one day, that would be an amazing feat. And fortunately, we've surpassed that. And so our focus was on Argentina for almost 15 years. And then in 2013, we introduced the first premium portfolio of Chilean wine, covering from the north, the Elqui Valley, down to the south in Mayeco. But prior to that, in 2002, we introduced sake. And at that time, people were a little bit confused as to why two gaijin from California were working in the sake business. Awesome. So for the listeners who aren't familiar, could you maybe explain the general structure of what does it mean to be a wine importer? Like, How do you structure in, in terms of the process of a business to be a wine importer? Robert, it's a good question because there are many different types of wine importers. So when you get your import license, you also automatically have your distribution license. So whatever state that you reside in um, as a company, you do have the ability to be both an importer and a distributor. There are many importers who are also self-distributed and some famous ones like Neil Rosenthal in New York or Peter Weigand are you know famous national importers, but also do self-distribution in, in New York. So there's regional importers, and then there are national importers. And so there's really three different levels from the state to regional to national. And so you have some people who import a product from a country, but they only have it for certain states, and then another importer might have it for other states. Ed and I decided that we wanted to be a national importer, that we wanted to have control over the brand all the way through and not have this sort of game of telephone take effect where one importer is importing for the Northeast, they have different pricing, they tell a different story, you know, then you're the, the importer for the Southwest and, and so on, right? So we 
made a commitment to be a national importer for our brands from the get-go. And so that's similar to someone like Co-Brand, companies that represent their brand for all markets. So that's, that's how we got started in 1999. We put together this portfolio from Argentina, followed by a portfolio from Japan in 2002, and then Chile in 2013. So we've been very focused on what we've done. And there are definitely importers who are world importers, so meaning that they bring in brands from all over the world. And then there are importers that are more specialized, whether it be a Spanish or Italian, South African wines, and so forth. And so we chose to be South American importer and sake. And again, Japan falling into that sort of uh, a country with a history of production over 800 years. Really, when we started in 2002, no recognition. People drinking sake bombs or hot sake and, and thinking that they're hungover because they drank bad sake or something when it's actually the uh, tequila shots they were doing after that. So that, that was our, our general premise, was to be a specialist and focused in the areas that we import. So it, it is the way to wrap my head around uh, regional versus national, essentially having a, like an exclusivity with that brand in for the for all of the U.S. Or is that Correct. is that kind of like unofficial, or is that somehow written in your like kind of partnership agreements with these with these brands? So in our agreements with our our wineries, and the agreements are really just uh, contracts that uh, outline what our responsibilities as their importer is and what their responsibilities as a producer are. They're not really binding contracts. So the wine industry, it's kind of a personal relationship business. Exactly, it is. At the end of the day, I mean, if they don't want to you know, be in business with you, it's why would you want to continue? But uh, we do have, one of the binding parts is we are their national importer, so we have the rights to all 50 states. We also do business in Canada and so forth. So if we do, we add that on. Got it. And so how does the business of, how does the importing business model work in the U.S.? Obviously, we have the three-tier system, but like, if you're the people bringing it in, how does it get to the end consumer and how, and what parts of the business do you, does your business model like support? So good question. I think that um, what people need to understand is, as I pointed out earlier, you can self-distribute in the state where your license is held because you have a distribution license for that state. You cannot be an importer without a distribution license as well. It's just all connected. So you don't just apply for an import license. But that being said, I we are based in California. Our warehouse is in California. I can sell in California directly to restaurants and retailers. We also have a, a retail license, so we can also sell to consumers. But if Peter owned a restaurant in even just our neighboring state of Nevada, I cannot sell directly to him. I have to go through a wholesale channel. And so that is what supports the three-tier system. And, and so I have to find a, a wholesaler in that market who will carry my products and sell them to Peter. So now going back to your, your question, what happens is we have wholesalers in all 50 states. And so we work with those wholesalers directly, their sales teams, and also directly with accounts in those states as well to get product to both the retailer or the restaurateur. And then we do consumer events, many consumer events. Obviously, we work with the press, so the press helps if we get favorable press to help generate some demand. And also we do lots of training. Education is a big part of our business tenant because we sell expensive South American wine. And to be honest, most people uh, think maybe South American wine should be 
less expensive. And so uh, we have to educate as to why our wines deserve to be considered as well as any California wine, for example. So that's really the circle is we bring it in, we warehouse, we sell to distributors in 50 states. So they place an order with us. They pick up from our warehouse. It goes to their warehouse. We work with their sales teams. So in the main channels of on and off premise, so meaning on being restaurants, off being retail, and then chains. And so that creates a circle of life for that product. And then you hope that that the consumers find that product through trade events that we do or consumer events and, and things like that, trying it at a restaurant and going to their retailer and buying it. All those are important aspects, um, whether you're in Arkansas or New York or California, that's it's the same basic principle. So a lot of people have equated uh, the U.S. to being like 50 different countries with all the different laws that exist for each state. Do you typically work with a handful of distributions that are kind of regionally based, or are you working on a, a state-by-state wholesaler? Well, 20 years ago was more individuals in a state-by-state basis. Uh, today, with consolidation, and also as we've grown as a company and our needs are larger, we have aligned with both RNDC and a little over a dozen markets, as well as Breakthrough Beverage. So RNDC, the second largest wholesale operation in the U.S., and Breakthrough is number three. Southern Wines and Spirits is number one. So we have alignment with, with those two companies, and then we have individual companies after that. And so there's less and less regional distribution companies. There's still a few that exist, but they're slowly being gobbled up for sure. And if we were just to take an example of like a $30 bottle of wine that is at retail, when you pass it through those different channels, is there kind of an, a fairly fixed ratio based on that wholesale cost or is that, or is that ratchet depending on the price of, of the products considerably? So in general, there's a fixed idea as to what the SRP is going to be based on what we pay. Right. But every state is a little bit different in the sense of freight and taxes, the size of your wholesaler. One of the advantages of working with a larger wholesale company is that they work on smaller margins as well versus a smaller company that sells less volume. So they have to have higher margins. Also, it depends on the state. Certain states have more aggressive retailers. And so sometimes their margins are lower as well. And so that changes the outcome. So, like if you look at Wine Searcher, it's sometimes an issue because you have a retailer in one state who's working at much smaller margins while they might be paying the same price than a retailer in another state. And the retailer in the other state would, you know, complain, but it's like, you know, you guys are paying the same price. You're just choosing different margins. It's sort of like Costco versus um, Whole Foods, right? I mean, so I think that that is often sometimes a problem uh, because with Wine Searcher, People think that somehow they should pay the same price. And it's not because we're charging less or more. It's just really a function of distribution uh, margins and then retailer margins. And is it safe to assume that every time you're, every time you have clients or retail clients that are in California, that you're always doing the distribution to them yourself because that margin's worth it for your business no, to do? No, we don't. That's a good question. We actually, uh, we did do that in the beginning, in the very beginning. But as I was traveling over 250 days a year, it was hard to also give the service that we wanted to give because it was just Ed and I when we started. And today we're 30 people. So we've grown a little bit since uh, since we started. And it was just not possible for Ed and I to give the service to 
the marketplace in California at the same time traveling around the country trying to find and develop our wholesale network. And so we chose to then no longer self-distribute and go with a distributor even in California. So we gave up that margin. Got it. Okay, so it's not worth the ROI to build up that infrastructure to, for that margin that you gain from the distribution? It can be, but because we didn't want to be a regional importer, we had chosen to be a national importer, we just felt like we couldn't do both well. And so we we decided to do one thing well and let distributors do what they do well. Yeah, it's almost like two different hats that you're... It is, oh. two different hats, yeah. Because then you're invoicing, you're, deli- you know, you're delivering... Uh, then you're collecting money. And how does it work with like unsold wine or returns? How is like does that eventually flow back? You said circle of life. Does it eventually flow back to you, or is that something that is taken on by the distributor? Are you talking about like someone has a corked wine or something? Uh, or? Either returns, or I know sometimes you also have the suggested retail price, right? And there's a lot of discounting when the new vintages will come out or something like that for some wines that wouldn't move. Like how does that? How does that? Like it's a, you said it mentioned as a circle, and I'm like, if you get the product to the retail, does it ever come back to you? Is it just no, for faults? It does not. No, okay. it does not. No, 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 and. I, I mean, I can't even think of any billbacks for TCA or anything like that. Now, if we had a batch of wine that is problematic, then what we would do is just destroy it at that wholesaler. We wouldn't pay for the shipment to come back and destroy it here. So, And what do you think are the key elements to being a successful importer? Well, I think the first is finding very good partners. So we, as a company, do not add people very quickly. So for example, we've only added one new winery from South America since 2017. We have not added any in 10 years with Chile. We have not added one new winery. We are a little bit different as an importer because many of my peers add new things all the time. For us, what it, what's important is finding the right partners, making sure that we share the same philosophy from quality perspective, value perspective. And value does not mean inexpensive. Value means that as a consumer, they go home, they pop the cork, and they're happy they spent whatever amount of money they spent. That to me is value. Not, oh, I spent $10 on a bottle of wine because you may not like it. And so then you just threw away $10, but you might spend 30 and be super happy. And so what's better? To me, the proposition of being happy at 30 is much better than unhappy at 10. So we want to make sure consistency from our producers. That means consistency in quality, consistency in pricing, and then a partnership that supports each other. And so that in 20 plus years, we've only had one winery leave us. And so I think that it's a track record and a testament to the fact that we found the right partners and we're the right partner for them as well. And so I think that's really important because it's it's not about selling the first bottle or even the second bottle, but it's about being successful long-term. And so we try not to turn our portfolio over and just add for the sake of adding. Because uh, you know better than I, you've spoken to many people in the wine industry, there is no lack of wine available. There would be no lack of opportunity for me to just add infinitely to my portfolio, but that doesn't do me any good or our suppliers any good. So, What are the criteria then for which you know you would add someone? It's a good question because there's lots of great producers that we don't work with. You know, lots of my peers who have great portfolios and I respect immensely. And so, you know, I think that the main criteria is that it doesn't cannibalize 
what you're doing, right? So you need to look for complementary assets that really focus together. You you create a bigger picture versus muddying the picture by adding that cannibalize each other. So we we look for again, it's the the people first, then the property. What makes that property special? And the consistency in their product, and then consistency in pricing. So I don't want people trying to overcharge. It's really a conversation about sometimes we've we've had people charge us more than what they wanted to charge because they deserve more than what they were asking. And it's our job to let them know what that perspective is in the U.S. and what they can actually be successful at, what price point. So again, it's a long-term proposition. And I'll give you an example of, you know, from the people perspective, when we launched our Chilean portfolio, we brought everyone to the market, all the producers to the market, and we worked the market and we had every producer carry wine in their bag from every other producer. And so it would be like, you know, Robert and Peter are out, you know, working the market and you've got, Peter, you have wines from Robert in your bag and you're selling those wines and vice versa, Robert, you're selling wines from Peter and talking about the country and talking about each producer because they're unique. They're not cannibalizing each other. And it was really fascinating to come together at at the end of the day and hear Peter talk about, you know, Robert, I sold, you know, 10 cases of your wine to so-and-so and building that camaraderie because together that's how we're all going to be successful. And so I think that that's super, super important is to have a complimentary portfolio that builds a picture that people respect. And what's the scope of, in your mind, of that complementarity? Is it varietal? Does it also include like price points? Like if you had, a, you know, $10 Malbec versus a $50 Malbec, is that potentially cannibalizing? I think the complementary factor is that the wines have a sense of place, a sense of identity that that represent where they're from and the people who are behind them. So it could be, it's okay to have two Pinot Noirs or two Malbecs or two Carmenaires that might be similar in price, but they reflect a different story and different personality, that they're not trying to be homogeneous in, in their expression. And so you focus on you know South America and sake. How important is focus, in your opinion, versus the people, as you said, who are like global importers? It's a timely question because we are beginning to diversify our, our portfolio. We started over 20 years ago with Argentina, and then we introduced Japan in, in 2002, and then 2013 with Chile. And so we've been very focused, and I think that's been very healthy for us. But also, sometimes you get a little bit stagnant. And so we've created a great network of distributors and uh, accounts around the country. And so two years ago, we decided to split the company into two divisions. One is Kome Collective, which is Kome means rice in Japanese. And the idea is all Japanese beverage. And then uh, Geovino, so Geo meaning the earth geography, geology, and, and so forth. And then Vino in homage to our Spanish heritage as a, as a wine company. So Giovino. And so the idea with Giovino now is to look at maybe exploring other parts of the world and how we bring the same philosophy we did for uh, South America to maybe the old world, to California or something like that. So it's an exciting time for us as an importer to be branching out. But I think that it's super important in the beginning 
for your company to have an identity. And I think by focusing on a region, on a country, it gives you the ability to have an identity that easier to communicate. If you're a world importer, it's harder sometimes, I think, and more complicated to, to have that identity because each country expresses itself differently. So, yeah. And in your mind, is there like an optimal size of the number of wineries an importer should partner with? <laughs> so we have about 120 SKUs in our portfolio. When you think about someone like RNDC that has 10,000 SKUs in their portfolio, not as an importer, but as a distributor, and then you look at companies that are much larger than us, and even companies that are smaller than us, SKUs are easy to, to add up, right? It's like we were talking about earlier, there's not an issue in finding new wineries to sell. It's really, the harder part is making the decision on not acquiring new brands because more is not better. Uh, your distributor doesn't want more. It costs more to inventory. There's only 24 hours in a day. So I, I think that there is a balance. What that number is, is really hard to say. I mean, I know importers that have 900 SKUs. I don't know how you possibly manage that number of SKUs just from you know, keeping fresh inventory, inventory management, all those things that go along with trying to manage lots of inventory. And, and then how do you communicate that to your distributor? What's your priorities? What, what are not your priorities? Uh, you certainly can't have 900 priorities. That, that would never work. You know, we're told when we have four or five priorities that we need to scale it back. And so that's what comes into effect is that your distributor can only do so, so much and then you have to do the rest. And so you have to decide what are the responsibilities of your distributor and what are your responsibilities. If you have the attitude that I import the wine and I sell it to my distributor and they're going to go out and sell it, you know, you're going to just have a bunch of dust balls in their warehouse because the poor salesperson for that distributor who has 10,000 SKUs to, to sell doesn't have the time. It's not that they don't want to, they just physically can't do it. And so you have to be the tip of the spear to really make things happen and show the path to success and, and generate interest in those brands. Your distributor doesn't have the ability to do that. And in terms of you know having lots of SKUs, is there a volume size that you think is optimal or a minimum volume that uh, of wine that you would bring in for any particular SKU or, or winery? It's a good question. When you speak to an importer who does more old world wines than we do, I think they'll ha they have a different answer. In the new world, there's really almost no constraints on volume. You know, unless you're doing a single vineyard appellated wine, you know, if you're doing a Napa Valley Cabernet, for example, you can just go find more Napa Valley Cabernet. You're not just constrained by your own vineyards. And so in the old world, there's much more constraints based on appellation, just based on sort of history of how they produce and, and stuff like that. In the new world, in Argentina or in Chile, you know, if you are doing Sauvignon Blanc, they just they'll buy more Sauvignon Blanc if you're selling more. And so I think it's a little it's a little bit of why I think South America doesn't have such a a strong reputation um, per se is because there's not a great appellation system. Right. And so, you know, when you talk about Malbec from Mendoza, Mendoza is a very big area. You can, you know, there's no way for me to outsell someone's Malbec from Mendoza. 
even if we say Malbec from Lujan de Cujo or Agrello or, or La Consulta, or, you know, these are big areas that there's always access. So I think that we tend to work very closely with our, our suppliers to have a good, a good balance on maintaining quality as we increase quantity, right? And so uh, unless we're doing a single vineyard wine, then we, we have less, you know, we have more constraints and less ability to continue to grow that particular wine. You know, I'll give you an example in Chile. If you're working with a winery in the past, many people work with one Chilean winery and they'll say, okay, we want Pinot Noir from Casablanca, but yet they're a Maipo producer. They'll just go buy Pinot Noir from Casablanca and put it under their label. Like, how does that make sense? And so all the wines that we work with from Chile are state bottled. And we we won't accept something, you know, except one, which is P.S. Garcia, but that uh, is it for you know a different story. But but in general, it's all estate bottled. So uh, so I think um, you know the, the the new world, especially South America, is learning how to create the image of a quality producer, and hopefully, as they mature and, and develop, and we're part of that development, one day they'll have the same reputation in South America as they do in the old world. So to flip that question a little bit, you originally mentioned like, hey, if we get, we got 2,000 cases, if we can get to 10,000 cases, that'd be good. Do you think there's a certain size to be a successful national importer that of a number of bottles you need to be importing, a number of cases you need to be importing in order to be able to service the major national markets? Well, it all depends on the channels that you want, Robert, to enter. If you're interested in being in the chain channel, then yes, that's one size, right? So that's a much larger size and if you're interested in just really the independent world, then that's a different size. So I think that we, we chose to be in all three channels. And so we do have wines that have much larger production. And then we do have wines you know, that are smaller production, but the smaller production wines, we just don't put into the chain channel. We uh, direct that where it's appropriate. You know, if you're an importer of small estates from Greece, for example, you're probably not going to go into the chain channel. So I think it, it all depends on what your business model is. I, I would say that a successful importer, they should use as a benchmark a million dollars per employee. Okay, that's an in, in revenue. So I think that if you're, if you're generating a million dollars per employee, because that means covering your office staff, right? Your finance staff, your sales team, marketing, so if you can do that kind of revenue per per employee, then you're you'll be a healthy company. And you mentioned earlier that you've you had a fairly very steady book and have only separated ways with one supplier. Yeah, one supplier. What what do you think is the key reasons that those partners are working want to work with stay working with you and continue working with you versus another importer? Like what is that what is that secret? What is that connection that you have with them? I think that um, our connection with them is communication. It's consistent communication. It's uh, providing them information, sales information by state. By You would be surprised how little information is actually ever delivered to wineries. When I talk to other suppliers who are interested in us and we talk about what why it is that they don't want to be with their current importer anymore, or a big part of that is communication. Sure, you can go visit them and you can taste or whatever, but we view ourselves as an extension of that winery. Their job is to be the producer, 
So they're the production side and we're their sales and marketing side. And so we work in collaboration so that we can have the most success. And I think what happens is that I know many importers who I term as spaghetti importers, right? You cook your pasta, you throw it against the wall and you see if it sticks and it's, and it's ready. I know many importers who will just pick up 10 new brands, throw them against the wall and one sticks and the other nine fall away and they don't, they don't care. And they move on to the next year and they pick up another 10 and another one sticks and the other nine fall away. And so that's a lot of wear and tear, frankly, on, on someone. It's unfair to those suppliers because they're super excited to have an opportunity to be in the U.S. And they really don't even understand what that means. They often will go with a regional importer or even a single state importer and they'll tell you, I'm in the U.S. Because if you're in England or France or Germany and you have an importer, you are in that country. I think Peter said it earlier, you know, we're 50 different countries here. We have 50 different laws that manage alcohol in the U.S. It's very complicated. And a supplier who's thousands of miles away thinks that they are now in the U.S. when in reality they may be in one or two or three states possibly. And so we're very clear. It's very important for us to see our producers often. But most importantly, we communicate with information. And I think that's something that, that lacks in this industry is really the transfer and transparency of communication. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.